This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the founder of The Witness, very extensive bio, the man, the myth, the legend. What are you doing? I don't know. This is not a this is not a listen, concert. Listen. I don't understand. <laughs> you sit there for like 10 seconds when somebody's introducing you, Ty. I mean, come on. Now, why you call me Ty? No, you you don't get to do that. No, you don't get to do that. I need you to. I need. This is what I need Jamar to do. Y'all know how whenever there is guest pastors in a black church, it's a very black church. Guest pastors in a black church, and they're getting introduced by the the head pastor. And the head pastor is today. We have a phenomenal gift from the Lord, the man of God. I first met this uh, transformative young man, and then the guest preacher is just sitting there like. That's precisely right. the pose. That's the pose. And you're just sitting there like. You just got to take it. Right. You, you just got to accept it. it uh. Right. Like you got to accept it. And there's one, there's one that I've started adopting where you just put your head in your hands. So you're just like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's me. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> Dr. Jamar Tisby. Jamar Tisby.substack.com. What's going on, brother? Uh, Not much. Except the world seems to be on fire. Okay, so yes. So not just so we've always we always talk about this from a physical standpoint. There's multiple panoramics, multiple pans labyrinths happening at the same time, it seems as though. But then also politically, My it's mom. like we can't get rid of 45. Like we can't Ooh. we can't get 45 out of he won't go away. We can't get him out of the news cycle. We can't get get him out of the conversation. We got him I'm off tired. Twitter and Okay, we got him off still. Twitter. But now he's doing rallies. They just screen cap what he does on True Social and put it on Twitter. Why do they do that? It's not funny. So can we talk about why we why we share people we don't like on Twitter? Why do we do that? I, um, part of it, I mean, we want to dunk on him. Look how stupid this is. True. <laughs> part, of it, though, part of it, though, is pedagogical, right? Like, I'll, I'll oh, pedag- What? See, there he goes again. Uh-uh. No, Listen, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. We're not going to have the tyranny hold up, of hold up expectations. Now, hold up now. Hold up now. <laughs> Hold up now. Hold up now. Mr. SAT, now tell us, break down what do you mean when you say pedagogical? <laughs> pedagogical. Pedagogos, you know. See, this is what I'm saying. Teaching. This is what I'm saying. Instructional is what I mean. So part of the time, if we, if we, if we point to something we disagree with or something that we think is not helpful, part of it is to point out what's problematic about it so that other people can understand when they see it again. Wow. That's helpful. That's pedagogical, even. Pedagogical. (laughs) That's actually helpful. That's actually helpful. So people are sharing this. And then also beyond all of the sharing and the rallies, the FBI just did. Is it a raid? Is it a raid or is it a... uh, I mean... Well, first of all... I skipped over the committee. I skipped over the committee. The January 6th committee, too. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, I mean, are they ever going to arrest this guy? I feel like we should call the episode this. Like, are they ever going to arrest this man? <laughs> or are they not going <laughs> to? Is is this a universal black feeling, They not too? finna. 
It's right. <laughs> what we're not gonna do is arrest him. Is this a universal black feeling? This man's not getting arrested. Okay, so I think so because of our relationship to law enforcement in I general. I kind of feel like they're gonna do it. I don't feel like it's gonna, it's stick, gonna stick. Yeah, but I feel like they're gonna do it. It might. It might could. Although, I mean, the fear. Okay, so so backing on up. All right, January sixth committee. Actually, in my opinion, this is a different topic, but they've done, I think, a very good job of publicizing the hearings, sure. having a few of them on prime time, having all of them televised, uh, very intentionally getting Republicans and conservatives testifying in this. So there's less of a, 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 a accusation of partisanship, even though it's still out there. Um, so, so that, in addition to the FBI going to raiding, you know, going inside Mar-a-Lago for classified documents that Trump took with him, which you're not right. supposed to do. Like, to me, that's open and shut. Is the stuff there? Right. It, he, he crossed the line. But how did... So help me understand this. From what you understand, how did he get to take these documents? He just took them. They so he just took the up. documents and it was just like, all right, I'm going to tell you, put that in yep, the briefcase. Yep, yep. If he didn't shred them up and put them in the toilet, which he has done with documents. So, so, so here's a funny thing as a historian. This stuff is coming from the archivists. They're mm. like, uh, we need these papers. This mm. is, first of all, it's the law. Second of all, this is part of the national historical record. I saw a tweet one time that said, don't mess with the archivists. And I thought that was lovely because history, if you want to do good history, you've got to have the primary sources. Who has the primary sources? It's the archivists hmm. who help collect them, catalog them, help you find them. So it's just really interesting as a historian that this is one of the biggest things. His 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 uh, beachside resort got raided because he took documents we need for the archives. So this is interesting because you you tweeted something that went viral, as you are prone to do, uh, because people like what you have to say. And you said at um, – hang on. Let me make sure I get this right. At Jamar Tisby. Uh, that is his uh, Twitter handle. <laughs> you said – you get mad at me. And I quote, uh, the tiptoeing, the coddling, the, deliberate, the deliberateness – no other racial or ethnic group, much less black people, would be afforded the kind of delicateness authorities and politicians are using with white people who threaten and enact violence against the government. Is this why we think we're, they're not going to arrest them? Yes. I mean, again, like you can look at the January 6th insurrection. You can look at... uh the way they made a big stink about President Obama wearing a tan suit, you can look at the way they've treated Donald hey, Trump yo, look, and his look, family. On, on some side note, that suit was fire, bro. It was like he wore it. That suit he was fire. He wore that. I got to give him props on that suit. That suit can was Can we fire. not have a stylish president? Like, I don't care as much about that because you know of the other stuff that he'd be doing, but that suit was fire. <laughs> I got to give him that. Very good. So- <laughs> he's like sure fine whatever back to the archivist but what you're bringing up is very interesting so the the disproportionate reaction oh my gosh that and and i think disproportionately across all different sectors yes. and spheres the deliberateness right how they're being so careful to make sure they've crossed every t and dotted every i and doing it 
in a way that is above reproach. Whereas if it was somebody from a different racial or ethnic group, it'd just be like, oh, just go. But isn't that a result of not just him, but his followers and what his yes. followers would do? Yes. So isn't it a result of the inherent threat of white violence? Exactly. Is there's nothing, even though we say that black violence is terrifying to the authorities and the powers that be, and this fear of the vengeful black mob coming right. to take, but in reality, the the group that they treat with the most delicacy is our white people who are enraged because they of know they're going to do it. They've already yeah. done stuff. Do you remember there was there was nearly uh, the, the governor of Wisconsin was nearly kidnapped. Can you yeah. imagine if they had actually pulled that off? They kidnapped a governor that w- they were in progress and it got disrupted. And then the, the, the clearest example of the discrepancy between violence that you're talking about is during the Black Lives Matter protests, and it was also during the Trump presidency, I believe, there it came to the fore this term, black identity extremists, hmm. which was BS based on the actual evidence, yeah. right? In reality, if you look at the Department of Homeland Security and they do a domestic terrorist threat assessment every year, Always the biggest domestic terror threat is white supremacist extremists. Yeah. yeah. And and that's where the tiptoeing comes with this entire process to try to um, root out the wrongdoing from this previous administration and arrest and convict. Mm-hmm. They are being so careful because they know these white extremists will take action. And even beyond the extremists who would re- resort to violence, there's all of this rhetoric. So after this FBI uh, uh, contact with Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, talk about this rhetoric, this is this rhetoric, because this bruh, is so funny, right? Bruh. Like they are literally threatening violence toward FBI officials. That's like any other group get away with that. And then also now we're using, we're oh, yeah. flipping the phrase oh, yeah. that got them in an uproar before, which is defund the defund police. Defund the FBI. And now we defund the FBI? Like what? Like what? Which it puts us in an interesting place as black people because right. it's like, are we- We're are not we? really pro-FBI. <laughs> right. Like, are we like rooting for the FBI Sorry. Now? You know. Um, and I've seen some For those who are listening. <laughs> oh, I've seen some activists say, yeah, defund the FBI. Now we've got Republicans- <laughs> We actually agree with yeah, you. <laughs> saying the same thing. We we got bipartisan agreement on this and maybe it'll happen. Um, but, but that actually comes from a history. So historically, it, the FBI, particularly in the civil rights movement, had not been all that helpful. Right. Um, it had been, uh, certainly during the Black Power Movement, we think of the counterintelligence program, otherwise known as COINTELPRO, Pro, yes. which was a, a, a deliberate spying um, endeavor to, to pit black leaders against one another, to dig up dirt mm-hmm. on black leaders, to incarcerate them, basically to undermine the black freedom struggle Absolutely. in that phase. And but even Hoover. Prior, yeah, yeah, even prior to that. So uh, the FBI, particularly in places like Mississippi, they viewed their role as strictly as observers, hmm. which meant they observed injustice constantly. And then what that did was local black people, they knew they couldn't trust the local law enforcement, the state, the county, the town. So they appealed to the FBI 
But the FBI was like, we're just here to observe. So that meant they had no law enforcement body to appeal to. Mm -hmm. So they had to go all the way up to Robert Kennedy and then the president to get any sort of attention. And if they deigned to pay attention, maybe something would happen, but oftentimes it did not. Hmm. So we have this long history with the FBI, in addition to other law enforcement agencies, of not being for black people at all. Um, as a matter of fact, being part of the part of the ops, as the kids say. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> not is the that ops. How, is that how you use it? Oh no! Is that, is that what it is? He went from Dane and then to Ops. <laughs> I'm agile like that. You got to keep up. But I think this is actually touching on a deeper issue, which is again the further 2016 broke something in our involvement in the political process. It broke something, I think, in our whatever remaining hope we had in the political process. I feel like it broke it for a lot of people. And then now, I feel like a lot of a lot of us have this very low expectation that anything's going to happen, that there's right. going to be any sort of accountability. Yeah. That's that's the key right there, isn't it? Accountability. Well, and what do you feel like accountability – let's establish this because I think it's important to actually say, from your perspective, what do you think accountability looks like for someone who is in power, who has done what he's done, who has facilitated what he's facilitated? What would accountability look like for this particular person? Well, if if he broke the law, he's he's going to have to um, be convicted, uh, and I don't know whatever the the penalties are. Mm-hmm. He would have to face that, which is not me saying you know yes, incarceration is the answer, punishment is the answer at all. What I'm more coming from is Jamar the abolitionist. <laughs> <laughs> Different conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to bring Bria in on that. Oh, wow, um, interesting. So. It, 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 it's less less about being, uh, you know, supportive of, of our carceral system or the criminal legal system as it operates now, and it's more about the consequences of not holding him accountable. Hmm. So I go back to even all the way back to the Civil War. <laughs> Can I do a Family Guy reference? No, you cannot do a one. Family Guy. There was reference. a Family Guy reference where they encapsulated in like seven seconds the absurdity of what happened. At the end of the Civil oh, War. Oh, yeah. No, that's yeah. funny, actually. So, <laughs> so Fine. You win. <laughs> so it was the surrender at Appomattox. Robert E. Lee is sitting there with the Union officials, and they have um, this document between them that Robert E. Lee's supposed to sign and surrender. And Robert E. Lee's like, so <laughs> let me get this straight. We sign this. We get to keep all our land. We keep to do whatever we want, and we still we get to be whatever, yeah. you know. Um Okay, you win, <laughs> and he signed it. Um, but that's actually a comedic form. A lot of what happened in a very serious way. Mm. That that yes, militarily the South was defeated, but in nearly every other way, they, they the got to continue yeah. as usual. Like Brian Stevenson said, they won the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Um, what happened then? was a very, very brief period of Reconstruction, but even during Reconstruction, a lot of racial violence and racial terrorism. Then comes the Redemption Era and Jim Crow, and what happened was a lot of the Confederate leaders were pardoned, Um, a lot of them got their property back, a lot of them got uh, exploitative labor back in the form of sharecropping, so nothing fundamentally changed in a lot of ways. Except the very significant change of the abolition of race-based chattel slavery, a lot of stuff continued as usual. I think the same thing 
is is has the potential to happen now right. if we don't hold insurrectionists accountable yeah what do you think 2024 looks like well and so i do want to back up even before we get to conviction and you know quote unquote incarceration whatever that would look like because it wouldn't be stereotypical incarceration that could be you know probably minimum security <laughs> you know or something house arrest yes you know whatever it may be but I think the minimum is he shouldn't be allowed to run for office. Oh, easy. You know, so I think that's just like number one. So can he not, can we cut that off, please? Can we make sure that that's done Um, so that we kind of put that out of our memory and out of our possibility? Um, That would be amazing. And then from there, I think, you know, the conviction. But I think it brings up something interesting about accountability, not just for someone like Trump, but for anybody that we run into that harms the marginalized mm. or harms us, that there is a level to which we're not quite confident in any case that proper accountability will be meted out to them. There's a level to which there's a level of, of inherent skepticism mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that justice is really going to happen. And I think that's, Partially because the law enforcement system was designed to empower and protect white people. Well, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back on Pass the Mic and Jamar will have to unpack that statement. Hey everybody, this is Tyler. This is Dr. Jamar Tisby. And we are excited that you're listening to this episode of Pass the Mic, but let me encourage you to support us. You can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash pass the mic. And for just $1 an episode, just a dollar? now that's the bare minimum, that's four quarters. But if you want to go higher, okay, 5, 10, higher. 15, right. 20, 25, whatever it is, that will keep this show going and keep the high quality that hopefully you enjoy. So thank you for listening, but you can take it to the next level. Patreon.com slash pass the mic. We appreciate you. We're we're back. We're back. Okay. We're back. Um, And the we has gotten bigger. Yes. We we have gotten bigger. Um, Bria Perry is on the podcast now because she was listening to this conversation and started chiming in. I said said she should have been in from the jump, but they don't listen to me. So did I. See what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? Anyway, so Bria, you were talking about our use of the word accountability. And so within activist spaces, you're talking about accountability differently than how we're describing it. Yes. What's what do you think? Expand on what you were saying. Yeah. So we talk about accountability as something that you cannot force on a person. It happens in a community process. And it's something that it's a process that happens willingly by the the someone coming to an understanding that their actions were wrong, that they harmed someone or a group of people. um, And now they want to go through the process of making amends for that. When we typically talk about accountability in the legal sense of the word what i think what we're really meaning is punishment and consequences we can say consequences if we don't want to say punishment as this like really Mm. it's got a lot of baggage as a term so we can say consequences and what we really want what we are really talking about is okay what can the law do to make sure that this person pays for their actions Mm. whether they think they did something wrong or not because you can go to court for something that you did but never 
admit that you harmed anyone. Never admit that your actions were wrong. And you you don't ever have to take accountability for that as a person. Right. But you can be punished to the extent of the law. You can have consequences mm. under the legal system for what you've done, whether you think you did something wrong or not. Is there is there? I mean, you can hold someone accountable, but you can't you can't force them to take responsibility for their actions. Right. But yeah. So yes, but I think that responsibility is inherent in the accountability. Taking right. or taking responsibility, the person themselves taking responsibility is a part of holding yeah. them accountable, which is why we say it's a community process. Like right. one person or a group of people says, hey, you harmed us or you harmed someone else. They say, OK, I will take responsibility for that. I will own up to that. And then we go through the process of what it looks like to make amends okay. according to what that group needs. The the person or the, the group who was harmed putting their needs in the center um, and that's, this is what we talk about too in like restorative justice right, and transformative right, yeah. justice yeah, yeah, practices. Absolutely. So, but it, it seems like your the accountability presupposes some sort of mutuality. Like it's a yes, like you has, are already in community with process, this person. Yes, which is very interesting as well. It's very interesting because there's also the conversation between justice and accountability. Right. Right. So. Uh, as we as we think about anyone who um, has caused harm, mm-hmm. it, then what does justice look like? This comes up in cases where of um, black people being murdered by law enforcement, right? right? Right, and also you take for example the Ahmad Arbery situation, right. and recently the I believe it's a father and the son were sentenced, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. And then the third person, the neighbor who was involved, sentenced to 35 years in prison. I think they said they have to serve it in a state prison, not a federal prison. And so there's fear of, of repercussion and consequence and all those types of things. Revenge, you know, I think it might get vengeance. murdered in yeah, prison. Yeah, might get murdered or, or, you know, perhaps worse in prison. And so it feels a lot of people were saying around that people are like justice and people are like, no, that's not justice because justice would have been him. living right right like if you take if you steal something from someone then justice is giving that thing back if you uh steal someone's money then you're giving the money back maybe with you know added something to it but if you take someone's life you can't resurrect them unless you're jesus of course unless you're god listen joy there is a a scholar activist named Joy, Joy James that said, and she said in a seminar, a webinar, she said that if the state wants to act like a god and take the lives of the of these black men and black women, then they can act like a god and resurrect the lives of these my, black my, men my, and my, black my, boys my. and black women. And if you can't do that, then you are not god. Mm. And so why are you? Oh, that's um, good. Now. Hold on, hold on. Now. That's uh, okay, good. Yeah. okay. That's good. Now. <laughs> and so there's. What you talk about the church ain't in the uh, social uh, justice uh, movement. Uh, Come on. Uh, okay. Clearly, we out here. So, yeah, I think there's just this idea of, of course, what do we mean by justice? And is it retributive justice? Is it restorative Restorative, justice? Maybe there's different kinds of justice. And maybe in some spaces, retributive justice is not justice at all. Like, you can just take the justice off. It's just retribution. So, I think there's multiple levels to this conversation. It's all very conflicted as we view it from the perspective of black people who historically have not been served very well by law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But I think with Trump and those around him, the question is, uh, will they 
will they face any consequences of their mm-hmm. actions? Mm-hmm. Like that's the angst that I feel uh, and that it, it just, it feels like they can do anything. And then on top of them being able to do anything and get away with it, no other group can. Well, and I think it is more than Trump for a lot of us. Yeah. It is Trump, but it's also more than Trump because I feel like the panic and the frustration and why we, I think it was recently, um, who was this? I think it was Terrell Owens, the former NFL wide receiver, who I think someone, a white woman in his, uh, in his, in a neighborhood, like she had stopped him because he, she said he was going, he was, you know, going however many miles per hour in the neighborhood. And then he's going live because he's like, she called the police on me. Mm. You know, so he's going oh, live. He's like, I've citizen. never, yeah, just a ra- random citizen. And she was getting upset. And he said his, his, uh, her husband told her to come inside and leave it alone. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, so if you're not going to leave it alone, I'm going to put it on live. And then, and then she was like, he was speeding through the, and a black one was like, no, he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I was in the garage. He wasn't doing that. Wow. <laughs> And it's, but it's, we go live because we know they can do anything to us. Yeah. We go live because we could end up dead. They can do anything to us. Yeah. So it's almost, yes, it is Trump. It's so much broader and deeper than Trump, which is, are there any consequences for violence to our bodies in this world? Are there any? And then the question is, is it possible to even look to the state, to the same state that mm, yeah. lays the foundation for this violence to be done to us, to then make amends for that violence? Or protect us, yeah. And, or protect and, us, right. And right before we went to break, you you dropped a bomb and you said <laughs> something to the effect of the state was constructed yeah. to... Yeah, to uh, protect and defend white people so and property yes so then that gets into the whole abolitionist conversation oh. and <laughs> we have been wanting to have this conversation on past the mic well. <laughs> are we really about to okay we, i think this needs its own space but it we does. can we can start down this route and then we'll well we can ahead. at least explore the tension right yes, which yes. is what bria brought up is is can the very institution that was founded in opposition to you actually protect you Right. And the tension is, in a sense, right now, that's all we've got. But then there's also, well, that doesn't have to be all we've got. Mm-hmm. Can we reimagine something different? Right. And there, there's the idea that even if you can't get with the entire, the entire idea of just everything goes, abolish everything, we don't need this, at the very least, most people can agree that we depend on the state we outsource things that should mm. that should be happening in community right uh to the state and so no, um good. there's this idea of abolitionist activist uh Miriam Kaba says that we are doing 1 million she has this campaign called 1 million Exper- experiments and what the idea is that there's not one solution to all of these problems of violence it's a it's a million solutions and it, and you have to really dig deep and figure out what is the root of this particular act of violence what is the root of this this particular issue of harm 
isn't harm because there's a difference between uh, crime and harm. Mm-hmm. Right. And like I was, right. I was saying this before. I was on the couch over there um, while they were talking. Amen corner. <laughs> In the amen corner, you know, um, and saying that the idea of crime is so elastic. I mean, it just became a. I mean, it. Just, there's a whole conversation about Roe v. Wade, but right. for decades, you know, it was not criminal to get an abortion, and now it is in you know states. It, in yeah, some states, complicated, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so now the definition of crime has expanded overnight, and so now you have an expansion of the the criminal legal system where something mm. that wasn't a crime yesterday is now a crime today, and yeah, so there's. There's just this whole idea of are we is the point to um, eliminate harm and crime is the point of the legal system to to eliminate harm and crime or is it to um, find reasons to expand so that we can then profit off of it so then we have a reason to fill up these prisons. Uh, uh, See, yeah, there's but I think there's something. very basic we still have to contend with in addition to that or even prior to that which is white power Mm. of Mm -hmm. course of course absolutely and even white people fear other white people Mm. this is what kept white moderates in line during the civil rights movement is white extremists would be like if you don't stay have have this white solidarity and conspire with us to disempower and even enact violence on other people, mm-hmm. you will be the target mm-hmm. of of that violence and, and those repercussions too. So what we're seeing now, because it involves a former president, is this playing out at the highest level in ways that affect a national conversation, but it's playing out in a million different ways, a million different problems that we yep. need a million different <laughs> solutions for yep. every day, which is that there is a deference to and a fear of white people and their responses in a way that is not replicated with any other racial or ethnic group. But I think and this also gets down to a theological problem, though, as well, because I think it is how we construct our view of God, of justice, of righteousness. You know, we're talking with Natasha about the wicked and the righteous and the contrast in Psalm 37. Mm. I think there's also this we need a restored theology of justice. Yeah. And I think this is, we've, we've kind of started to, we kind of piecemealed it after 2014, but I think we really need to dive deeper into what is a proper theology of justice that would cause us to address issues of accountability and consequence and restoration and uh, retributive justice and transformative justice, because I feel like that gets more down to, I feel like we've we've run out of the piecemeal. Like the piecemeal no longer works for a lot of our Christian justice conversations. Mm-hmm. We need something deeper, you know. And I know Jamar, this is you, this was this the point I live. was making before. This is where you live, right? <laughs> but I think this is like th- we need something deeper, and we need something better, and we need something that is rooted in more than just a couple of scriptures that say God is a God of justice. Mm. Well, what does justice look like, mm. and what does it mean for our society? And I actually think that's this is perhaps more important that the conversation about true theology of justice is more important and more urgent than the conversation about how diverse our churches are. 
this is Afrotheofuturism. <laughs> that it rather than you worrying, imagining. rather than you worrying about the percentage of black people at your white church. <laughs> <laughs> there was rather so much than, judgment in that wow. statement. No, no, no. I'm just no, 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 no. I'm just saying. There's a better way. It was because I held my hands up like this, right? This is not Illuminati. Like, I don't know. I was like, wow. Rather than you doing that, why don't you construct a theology of justice that gleans from and listens to the voices on the margins that are authority figures, as authority figures and experts, and construct that rather than let's hire a black person to do the work that number one, they're not equipped to do in that particular setting and they shouldn't be expected to do, but have the hard conversations and do the education work that we're too lazy to do for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what we're, what we're actually missing is that there are a lot of churches and movements, Christian movements in the white evangelical space that hopped on the conversation around justice and they really they really use it as a gateway drug to get into multi-ethnic diversity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they yeah. smoke justice weed and then got into the hard drugs. Wow. Of, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> what? And, and then they got into the hard drugs of diversity, metaphor. right? Okay. This is a metaphor. <laughs> right? And so then you just, you just, you, you went through it. It just wasn't strong enough for you. Yeah. Okay. Because you're like, I passed it, it, through it. It wasn't the high they wanted. It wasn't the high you wanted. That's it. It's, it's, it's a metaphor. It's, it's a metaphor you understand. Okay. Uh, it's a metaphor you understand. Just but we've say been no. saying this for years <laughs> is that when, when, when churches make diversity the goal, it's 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 diluted. It's weak. But when justice is the aim, you get diversity as a byproduct. Almost it it you can bring different kinds of people together when you bring them together on a mission, yeah. rather than the mission being just bringing people together. Because then your program becomes how can we make everybody happy so that everybody uh, stays together. Rather than justice, which always has to take sides, I'm willing to offend some if it is in pursuit of justice. And that's the way we get unity because it's unity around what? Right. So. And it's funny because I don't know if you were joking when you said Afrotheofuturism, but I wasn't. It, you were. <laughs> I'm, I'm, of course you were. <laughs> we're going to put that in the vernacular, exactly what y'all. We're doing. This is kind of what we're doing. We are inserting I mean, this into the justice conversation. Yes, it is, go though, for it. because, I mean, the entire point of Afrofuturism is using the tools of the future to imagine what freedom looks like That's and what, what liberation looks like. Yes. And and then there's that, then there's the conversation about. Are we focused on diversity for diversity's sake, or are we trying to get free? Come on. Exactly. And this is the heart behind what I'm saying, which is, you know, I know everybody thinks I'm shady, but I'm just saying, (laughs) I I want us to be free, okay? I want us to be free. free. I, I want us to be free, and I want us to be in spaces that value our freedom. Because I think you you are you are afraid that accountability won't happen or consequence won't happen or punishment won't happen in spaces where you feel like you cannot be fully yourself and they will not accept your whole self. Mm. And this is the case with our country, our churches, <laughs> our culture, our society, our neighborhoods. Yeah. We are afraid because of that. So what you're saying is we need to get high on liberation. <laughs> Help us, Father. Mute. <laughs> 
mute. I, that's that. Anyway, this is what I'm saying. Do y'all see what I'm saying, though? What I say becomes a joke. <laughs> For two weeks, they're going to be texting me be like, Justice Week. Gateway drug. You know? <laughs> You're never gonna live it down. But it's it's a, it's a metaphor you can understand. I don't mean it literally. I'm just what saying. What do you mean we can understand? What are you implying? <laughs> what are you trying to say? Anyway, thank you all for tuning in to Pastor Mike Bria. Thank you for joining us for the second half of this episode. Afro Theo Futurism again. Arrest Trump. All the above. <laughs> Amen. Boom. Thank you, Saints. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.